Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we're going to discuss some of the biggest stories in healthcare policy throughout 2020. Joining us for this discussion is AAF's Director of Healthcare Policy, Christopher Holt. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. How, how have you been holding up throughout the uh, quarantine and stay at home? Yeah, I mean, I got to be honest. I don't think we can complain too much. I think uh, as far as it goes, stay at home, lockdown, quarantine has been easier on us than a lot of people. So yeah, yeah. We, we were able to get out of D.C. for a while. So that was good. Yeah, I saw you got to make a trip up in, to Wisconsin and spend the, you know, I saw all of your Instagram posts about being on the lake and all that and yeah. got me a little jealous. So yeah, awesome. yeah. The kids learned how to, how to like tandem ski. So that was fun. And then, and then we did some triple skiing, right? Three people. Uh, and my, my son wants to call that tandem. I'm not sure why, but he's trying to make that happen. So anyway, but we've got, yeah, so we had, we had a lot of fun. It was good. Nice, nice. And have you been keeping up with sports? I know Portland had a little bit better of a season than, than you thought they were going to have it near the end. Yeah, I mean, the bubble was fun, right, until the playoffs started. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I, I followed it and, and uh, actually I watched all those games. So that was that was a lot of fun. So. Nice, nice. All right. So let's jump into healthcare. I'm sure we could have had a whole podcast on talking about the future of our NBA teams, but um, we'll talk about healthcare instead today. Um, a big story over the past year has been the challenge to the Affordable Care Act, the ACA, known as California v. Texas. Um, this has received even more attention over the past couple of weeks with the nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Um, in your most recent weekly checkup, you wrote about how this story has been exaggerated a little bit. Um, can you explain what you meant by that? Well, I think there, there's several things. First of all, there, there's a narrative that has been really effective politically for, for Democrats around the idea of pre-existing condition protections, right? So one of the things that the Affordable Care Act did is it said that uh, insurers can't discriminate against someone who has a, a prior health care condition when they, when they sign up for insurance. So you can't charge them more for that. You can't deny them coverage in the old marketplace an insurer might have said, look, we'll give you um, coverage, but we won't cover your cancer diagnosis because that already that, that exists prior to you coming on board with us. Um, there were ways around it, but if you had a break in coverage, that was, that was a real challenge. So that's one of the things that the ACA did away with. So if the ACA were repealed, those protections would go away. And, and that's one particular policy that really resonates with voters. So we saw in 2018, you know, sort of a concerted effort on the part of Democrats to say, hey, Republican healthcare policy ideas basically repealing the Affordable Care Act will, will take away this protection. And so I think, you know, if if you're just generally opposed to Amy Coney Barrett replacing Ruth Bader Ginsburg, then like that's been an effective poly, you know, talking point, right? Mm -hmm. Is to talk about how, you know, um, Barrett could be the vote to overturn the ACA and, and take away pre-existing conditions. Um, so that's sort of, I think, I think Democrats have smartly sort of focused on that in in their um, in their pitch for preventing her from being added to the court. But I I think if you look at the history of the court and the ACA, it it's really very unlikely that the ACA is in all that much danger. Uh, and so like I I would think you know there's obviously the uh, the original ACA case in which the uh, you know the court basically ruled five four that the law could stand. But what was interesting about it was that 
you had four uh, four uh, justices who said that the individual mandate, that case mostly um, hung on the individual mandate, right, um, to buy health insurance. And they said that's unconstitutional. The federal government can't require you to purchase something. And the four justices that said, oh, that's fine. And then you had Justice Roberts, who really had to kind of turn himself into a pretzel in order to keep the law intact. Because he, but he, what he said in his opinion is, it is unconstitutional for the for the government to tell you that you have to buy something, but the but the government has broad taxation powers, and I think they meant for this to be a tax, not a mandate. And so, if it's a tax, then that's fine, right? So you had four against four, four, and then one who said, eh, "Let's call it something else and pretend none of this happened," right? But but I mean, I think what you saw was a, a desire on the part of Justice Roberts not to sort of step on Congress, not to step on the the uh, policymakers. It would have been a very controversial ruling. I think he's very concerned with the uh, the reputation of the court. All right. Well, now fast forward to 2014. We have the King v. Burwell case. That case basically argued that the way the ACA was written, that you were really only eligible for subsidy premiums if you were in a state exchange. And most exchanges are are run through the federal government, right? The states didn't set complicated, whatever. But the court said in the in the majority opinion, which was a 6-3 ruling in favor of the ACA, the, that, that is true. The clear reading of the statute would lead you to that conclusion. But for a host of other reasons, they were going to say that they could interpret it such that it was okay as was. Right. I mean, again, the court sought to not overturn the legislative process. Right. Um, and then and now now we're and, and I think on that ruling, the three dissents were Thomas, Scalia and Alito. So now we're in 2020. The law has been on the books for, it will be in 2021. The law has been on the books for over 10 years. It's been implemented for now, I think we're going into year seven. So, uh, and it's quite popular. At a time that the court's reputation is somewhat in danger, there's a lot of politicization of the, the process around court appointments. I just don't see a huge desire on the part of this court to after having really gone out of their way in the past to keep the law intact, to throw it out now. So, so I just think that's largely overstated. Now, in this case, the argument is that back in the Tax, tax Cut and Jobs Act, when uh, Congress made the mandate penalty zero for, for violating the individual mandate, in effect, you can't have a tax for zero dollars, so it's not really a tax anymore. It's back to being a mandate. Even though there's no penalty, that's unconstitutional. And they're going back to an argument from the original case, which was that the mandate was a critical piece to the law functioning. And that without that mandate, the rest of the insurance market reforms would collapse and you couldn't have you, you couldn't have them. So you had to throw out the whole law. So they're saying, look, under Justice Roberts' opinion back in 2012, this is unconstitutional. And remember, everyone who was working on the ACA back in, in 2010, you know believed that this was crucial, so we have to throw out everything. I think that's a, a weak argument because while, yes, I think we all thought the mandate was crucial back in 2010 and 2011, it's never actually really been enforced. So the Obama administration didn't penalize people for, you know, the penalty was in effect, but you had to self-attest that you owed it. Like they didn't come after anyone. Um, there were a host of waivers. There were something like 14 waivers that you could apply for. And the last one was any other justifiable reason documentation preferred, right? You know, it was it was like, if you can just come up with an excuse, 
then um, then we'll then we'll call it good. In any case, so you have that, and then and then we go to Tax Cut and Jobs Act in 2018. We didn't have the mandate penalty at all, right? And so we've just never seen the mandate enforced. It doesn't seem to have had an effect. If you're the court and you're looking at that, it's pretty easy to say, ah, the rest of this can stand without it. And then we saw in Justice, or not just Judge um, Barrett's uh, confirmation hearings, you know, she said, look, you got to give a lot of deference to severability. You got to look for. So, so I just I do not see much chance of the court striking down the whole law, uh, much less striking down I mean, the whole law. I also think it's unlikely they'll strike down the insurance provisions. I think they very well may say the mandate is unconstitutional and, and we'll be right back where we were. So I just wanted to ask, why are we back here right now? Like what, we talked about this in the ACA. Was it just the changes to um, the tax changes to the mandate that brought us back here to have another court case about the ACA? Yeah, yeah this is this is literally the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, the little provision to zero out the, the penalty. I think they wanted to repeal the mandate in that in that law, but because of reconciliation rules, you know, Senate budget rules, they couldn't just repeal the provision, but they could change the dollar amount. So they made it zero so that they could say that they had repealed the individual mandate, which is one of the more unpopular parts of the law. The thing that's important to keep in mind, you know, obviously we don't know how the how the election is going to go, but if if Democrats have the type of election night that they that they think they're going to have, they could repeal the individual mandate completely. And the lawsuit would go away. They could also change the individual mandate penalty to a dollar so that it's an effect, and the and the lawsuit would go away. Right, right. Either of those things would uh, would neutralize it. Um, so, gotcha. What would happen if the court did strike down the law, and you know, Democrats take over the Senate and White House, as you mentioned? Could they just eliminate the filibuster and pass some sort of replacement? What What's the scope of what could happen here? So, so first, I would you know let let's think about what it means to actually throw out the the Affordable Care Act. Back in back in 2016, Republicans in Congress passed a bill. It was HR 3762, and it was framed as a repeal bill, right? That it repealed the ACA, and, and President Obama vetoed it. But we, I remember at the time, we wrote basically a 12-page memo on like all of the provisions that were in the Affordable Care Act. And only the first two pages would have been repealed in this like full repeal, right? Because it was being done through reconciliation, you can only do so much. But, but it just gives you a sense of the scale of the law. So there are, beyond the insurance market reforms, beyond the subsidies, beyond the Medicaid expansion, there's mental health parity, there's provisions about concurrent Medicaid treatment for hospice, Medicare treatment and hospice for children, right? There's there's the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, which has, which I've actually railed against quite a bit, but which has done a, a number of major demonstration programs that have reshaped the Medicare program. What happens to those demonstration programs if we decide that the institution that set them up was unconstitutional in the first place, right? I mean, it, um, then they affect practice patterns across the board for um, for, pra- for providers, et cetera. There's the biosimilar pathway, right? So we talk a lot about generic drugs and name brand drugs. So in the biologic space, the whole pathway for biosimilars was initially established in the Affordable Care Act. Um, so, there's, so there's a ton of things in that law that go beyond sort of what we traditionally think of as the insurance market reforms. So it just gives you a sense of kind of how big the hole is, right? And it's it's tied into a bunch of statutes that have come since. So to what degree 
are statutes that are referencing that? How does, how does that affect them? It's very, that's a complicated mess. But as far as trying to solve the problem, certainly if, uh, you know, if Democrats control the Senate, I, I think they've been very clear that um, they are willing to do away with the filibuster on legislation. Um, and so, yeah, you, you would be looking at the ability. So first of all, I think Democrats would pass something. And I wouldn't assume they would just pass the ACA, right? I mean, you could do a Medicare for all, all of a sudden. You could do a much more robust, sort of aggressive ACA version of a public option, right? I mean, the, the options are kind of endless at that point. It's just what Democrats can agree to among themselves. Um, so there is like a certain amount of an irony that conservatives have spent so many years trying to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. They get this court case, and then they, you know, if it actually happens, Democrats could be very well positioned to push forward with more expansive progressive um, health care policies than they likely would be able to in the absence. Because in the absence of a court case throwing out the law, uh, it, it's much less it's much less eager to get or it's much less easy to get, you know, unity among a, a lot of Democrats with very divergent views on these things to pass something big. So could end up being a, a problem for, for those who didn't like the ACA. Yeah, I mean, I, I still remember back when this verse was being debated that it took them how many weeks to get all, you know, they had 60 votes and it took them almost as long to get everybody on the same page. You know, you had Lieberman standing up against the public option and all those things. I actually have a theory that the Affordable Care Act would not have been passed if not for Scott Brown winning the, the uh, Massachusetts Senate seat, because up until then, House Democrats were refusing to accept the Senate passed bill, which had barely gotten through with 60 votes. Um, and they were insisting on more changes because they said, look, you've got a 60 vote majority. You can do whatever you want. When Scott Brown won that seat and you no longer had 60 votes, the Senate could no longer pass anything. And at that point, the House had to basically acquiesce to the Senate bill. And then they did the reconciliation bill to, to make a few changes on um, which they could pass with 51. But I think in the absence of that, you know, if I, I'm spacing now on well, uh, Coakley. You know, if you have a Senator Coakley there, so, suddenly there's no pressure on House Democrats to cave into the Senate. And I don't know that that ever happens. So. Mm. <laughs> a lot of history there. So just to sum up discussion about the court case, there's a lot that the court could do. There's a wide range of the scope that we could be facing so that this whole this political discussion could be over-exaggerated. It could, you know, there, there's many different outcomes that could come here. Is that basically right? Yeah, I mean, I think we didn't even talk about standing, but it's not clear that the plaintiffs here have standing, right? So, so the court could just throw the case out on a matter of standing, right? There, there's a host of ways for the court to avoid making a really politically controversial ruling here. Um, and so I just think it's unlikely that they do. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are tools available to Congress and a new administration if they want to curtail the lawsuit before it gets to that point. Gotcha. On the topic of the ACA, one thing that, you know, you emailed me about right before we got on the uh, air here, is that uh, the CMS came out with their ACA premiums report. What, what were some of the highlights in that? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. So, so um, CMS can only tell us about the federally facilitated marketplaces. So it's worth noting that not all states use the federal exchange. Some states do run their their own exchanges. So this this data that CMS put out does, is not the full country, um, but it, it's by far, far the vast majority of states. And what was significant was, was CMS concluded that for the 2021 plan year, we were going to see a drop, an average drop in silver benchmark premiums, right? So this is generally how we think about premiums in the, in the post-ACA world. There's a lot of ways to count it, but, but that, that benchmark premium that uh, determines what your subsidy is, 
that those premiums will go down 2% compared to last year. And that's sort of significant because last year, so, so we have at AAF done over the years sort of broader analysis that looks at the federally facilitated and the, the state exchanges. It takes longer because you have to scrape that data from the websites. But, but we found in 2020 that the plans, the benchmark silver plans nationwide came down about 3%. So this would be the first back-to-back -back decrease in, in sil silver benchmark premiums since the ACA was enacted. And then in 2019, they increased about 5% which was the lowest increase that we had seen up until that point. So, so there is a story here of a remarkable amount of stability in the, in the ACA premiums over the last three years during a period when the Trump administration has been implementing a number of sort of smaller reforms that sort of supporters of the ACA have said are, are, going, are aimed at sort of destabilizing the market, um, causing the ACA to fail, so things like short-term limited duration plans, association health plans, et cetera. And, and so I guess you know the, the story coming out of the last three years is either, if you, if you want to be uncharitable, uh, that was the administration's intent and the policies have been ineffective, or actually the administration hasn't done a very, they've actually done a pretty good job of, uh, of stabilizing the marketplace. You know, you know, before 2019, we saw pretty dramatic premium increases. It's, it's hard to compare from 2014, which was the first year, to 2013, um, because you don't have the same kind of insurance products to compare. But, but you know, sort of ballpark around 50% increase in individual market premiums in that first year. And then, and then in 2015, it was a little under 6%, which, which is not terrible. That's in line with employer-sponsored insurance. But then in 2016, it, it was 10% increase. And then in 2017, it was a 27% increase. And then in 2018, it was a 36% increase. Now, that 36% increase, a large amount of that is the Trump administration's decision not to make uh, some cost-sharing reduction payments to insurers, um, which was also a, a court case at one point. So, you know, they're not totally without, without blame for some of those uh, for some of those premium increases. But we have seen a remarkable amount of stability here in the last few years. Interesting. Let's shift this discussion um, somewhat to talk about health coverage during the pandemic. A lot of people lost their job because of the pandemic um, back in March and April. Um, so it would certainly seem that a lot of people uh, would also lose their health coverage because of that. Um, I know you looked at the issue and AAS President Douglas Haltagan uh, has testified on this issue. What, what do we know? Yeah. So, you know, we have about 22 million people who lost their jobs between March and April, right, as a result of the pandemic. You know, when you consider that about 56 percent of the American population gets their health insurance from their job, you know, that that's a substantial concern. There's not a ton of data available yet. Um, you know, we won't have a, a really clear picture about who lost their coverage and when and, and what happened until, you know, really until probably next year. Um, but there have been several studies that have been helpful in putting some numbers around it. So one that was particularly useful, the Kaiser Family Foundation in May estimated that about 78 million people lost ESI because of the pandemic. Now that's, you know, 22 million people lost their jobs, but that's including households. So people who got their insurance through a, a family member who, who lost their ESI. So, so that's kind of staggering, right? That's, that's like around the number of people who are enrolled in Medicaid. But when Kaiser went through and looked at other, other things, they found that most of those people had an offer of employer-sponsored insurance through another family member. They were eligible for Medicaid, or they, had, they were eligible for subsidies in the individual market under the ACA. 
So at the end, they determined that there were about 5.7 million people who didn't qualify either for federal assistance or for employer-sponsored insurance. So, so that would look like you know about a, a five to six million increase in the uninsured as a, as a result of that. Now, again, some of those people may have still purchased insurance, but they didn't have access to some sort of subsidy. Okay, and most of them were in households with income over 400% of, of the federal poverty level, which uh, means that you're not eligible for subsidies in, in the, uh, under the ACA, um, which for a family of four, you know, I, I actually can't do off the top of my head, but we're talking about more than $100,000 a year. And so you know, that was one study. Another, a microsimulation model that the Urban Institute ran projects that at the end of the year, there will be 3.5 million people who don't have insurance coverage because of pandemic-related job loss. So you mentioned uh, Doug testified, testified um, before the House on this issue. He took a look at the Census Bureau's um, Household Pulse Survey, and he found that there's actually basically no change in the rate of uninsured over the first half of 2020. That, um, in fact, it decreased by half a percent the number of uninsured. So, so we don't know exactly what the what the pandemic impact on insurance has been, but it does seem like the safety net of Medicaid uh, and CHIP, uh, as well as other employer-sponsored options and the, the ACA subsidies have really filled that gap in pretty effectively. So, so it doesn't seem like it's been a huge, a huge population of people who have been left uninsured which I don't think was um, by any means a foregone conclusion, right? At the beginning, I think we were really wondering, you know, how many people, the other thing to keep in mind is a lot of these jobs, think of like all the restaurant jobs where people weren't being offered insurance in the first place. So those people may be uninsured, but they may have been uninsured before they lost their job, right? Because they probably weren't getting their insurance through their job. Mm -hmm. How does this um, compare to those who were uninsured prior to the pandemic? Um, I think you wrote a, re a, a weekly checkup about this a couple of weeks ago um, about who was uninsured and needed help. Um, are the people who needed help before the pandemic the same people who need help now? So that's a good question. So kind of thinking about who the uninsured were before the pandemic, they probably are in the same categories, right? They're not the same people because these people had insurance, right? Um, but they're they're probably largely in the same categories. So, you know, the the number of uninsured in America like will depend on your methodology and how you count. So, like the census has two different surveys: the current population survey, annual social economic supplement, and the <laughs> And the American Community Survey, and the first one, and they just they count differently, right? So the first one put the uninsured rate at 2019 as 26.1 uh, million. The other one at 29.6 million. CBO recently released their report on 2019 insurance, and they they found the uninsured to be about 29.8 million. So you know, operating off that that 29 million, that's probably the right the right ballpark right there. But, but what CBO found that was interesting was that 67% of that almost 30 million, 20, 20 million people who are uninsured in America in 2019 were eligible for subsidized coverage. So like, like a little over 5 million were eligible for Medicaid or for the Children's Health Insurance Program uh, and just hadn't enrolled. Another 22 million were, were eligible for Medicaid through the Medicaid expansion, but just hadn't enrolled. You had about five and a half million people who 
were eligible for ACA subsidies, right? So they could go into the individual market and buy a plan with an ACA subsidy, just hadn't done it. Uh, and then you had nine and a half million people who were eligible for employer-sponsored insurance and just hadn't elected. So, so you're actually really only looking at in 2019 about 10 million people, a little less than 10 million people who didn't have one of those options. So then who are those people? Well, they're largely the same people we just talked about, right? There's two and a half million, a little over two and a half million whose income was above 400% of the federal poverty level. You know, we can talk about, so, so some have proposed increasing subsidies in the ACA past 400% of poverty. So we can talk about whether or not those, those people should um, be subsidized or not. But just keep in mind that when the drafters of the ACA, you know, developed the legislation, they thought if you make 400% of the federal poverty level, you can probably pay for your own health insurance. So mm -hmm. Now, health insurance has gotten a lot more expensive as a result of the ACA. So, you know, maybe the calculation changes. Then there's about 3.2 million people. This, this is the bulk of the, the problem in general in the uninsured who live in states that did not expand Medicaid. Under the, under the Affordable Care Act, but have income levels below 100% of the federal poverty level. So prior to the ACA, states had different levels at which they insured, and they typically didn't offer Medicaid to childless adults. Sometimes they did, but typically not. So the ACA, what the ACA allowed um, states to expand their Medicaid to 100 and, uh, 134%, roughly where the ACA subsidy, right, 133, 134%. The federal poverty level, and then there was an enhanced federal match for, for that population. The federal government would cover more of the cost if you, if you did that expansion. But if you didn't do that expansion, uh, it defaulted such that if someone had income above 100% of FPL, they were, they were then eligible for the ACA. They could go get subsidized coverage in the exchange. But if they were under 100% of FPL, they couldn't access the ACA subsidies. They didn't go below 100% because it was assumed you'd be on Medicaid. And if you hadn't been previously eligible for Medicaid, then you're just out in the cold. So we have a, a situation in some states that didn't expand ACA where people say making 112% of uh, the federal poverty level are able to get ACA subsidies that largely covers the entire cost of their insurance, while someone making, say, 96% um, is completely uninsured and has no option. So there's about 3.2 million people who are kind of in that boat. They make less than 100% the federal poverty level, and they live in a state that didn't expand Medicaid. That, that is the, the primary problem when it comes to the uninsured in America, that, that, that three to four million people. Uh, and then the other four million are not, they're not lawfully present, right? They're, they're undocumented immigrants. That's a different policy conversation, but none of the proposals to expand coverage for the most part have, have advocated for giving insurance coverage uh, at taxpayer expense to undocumented immigrants. And so We'll, you know, I, I think it's kind of a different conversation, right? None of the solutions that are out there really address that problem. So that's kind of the world before the pandemic. Yeah. So you mentioned that the bulk of the problem was in people that live in states um, that didn't expand Medicaid, mm -hmm. uh, the Medicare. Was there a reason for that? Why they didn't? Yeah. Or, so actually, this is part of that same court case where the where the Supreme Court upheld the law in 2012. So the Affordable Care Act originally had a requirement that states expand their Medicaid population as part of the ACA. And there was a, a threat that if the state didn't expand their population, then the U.S., then the federal government would remove their Medicaid funding altogether. 
the Supreme Court ruled that that was, I think the phrasing was a gun to the head, they, that the federal government was forcing the states to take policy actions by threat of removing federal funds in a way that was inappropriate. Um, and so the Supreme Court decided that that Medicaid expansion was voluntary. And so, so then what you had, and you've had ever since, although there's been a trickle over time towards expanding, is really a blue state, red state divide where blue states expanded Medicaid, red states were less likely to. Um, but, but the argument for not expanding Medicaid was that initially the promised to pay 100% of the cost, uh, and, then it would, and then it would tick down over time, and eventually it would be 90% of the cost, which is still a lot better than, than say, 70% or 60% or what, you know, the FMAP, the, the federal share, is different for different states based on that state's economic status, right? So, so the, the federal government pays a lot more of it, but not all of it. There's a not unreasonable theory that you're not going to get that federal largesse forever, that at some point budget constraints are going to get involved and the federal government will like back away, or even that that 10% of spending is too much for state budgets to absorb. Uh, you just can't be confident that you're not going to be left holding the bag. That's sort of the argument against expanding. Over time, um, more and more states have gone ahead and done it. More recently, we've seen red states where they've done it through the ballot or initiative process. So the voters have voted to do it. But yeah, that's that's kind of what happened there. Gotcha. What does this mean for policymakers? Are the current policies in your mind sufficient for what for 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 meeting the needs of people that need coverage, or is there other policies that we should be considering? I, I think we need to be careful about sort of making these conversations all about coverage, because one of the issues that we're seeing is, you know, in the case of, for example, those people who are eligible for subsidies in the exchange but aren't buying, and, and especially for that population with incomes too high um, that are opting out, um, that premiums are just getting too expensive. So we've done things through the ACA that have increased the cost of health insurance. And, and so I, I think we shouldn't ignore policies thinking more about cost control. That's part of the, that would help with some of the coverage issues. But I do think to the degree that particularly um, advocates of expanded coverage want to want to do so, I think we should stop thinking about the 30 million uninsured because a lot of that is just people who, for whatever reason, are not taking advantage of the coverage options they have. And we should focus in on probably that population that's under 100%. That, that's probably where a targeted solution would be helpful. Okay. All right. So I want to wrap up our conversation today by talking about another thing you've written on. Um, you've been quite busy this year. And that's, of course, the COVID-19 vaccine, um, which is hopefully coming soon. We can all hope and <laughs> for that. There really are two questions here. Um, one, of course, is when we might expect a vaccine. But the other big question is what happens when we get it? There's troubling polling out there that shows, you know, Americans are skeptical about the safety of the vaccine. Your weekly checkup highlighted a recent Gallup poll that found half of Americans said that they wouldn't get the vaccine when, when it comes to market. What is behind this pretty shocking level of distress? Yeah, I think, you know, we've seen this year that nothing is above the reach of being politicized. <laughs> and so, you know, there, there has been a politicalization of COVID and the response to COVID, right? It, does, it has not helped much of the, of the president's public statements on things around this have been, have at least appeared to be aimed at, uh, at sort of uh, helping himself. Right, right. And so 
Um, they've been self-motivated. So I, I think there's a couple things that are driving this. There was already a segment of the population that had concerns about vaccines, right? You have your anti-vaxxers, but then you have people who just, I think, you know, are, are largely up to speed, up to date on their vaccines and such. But you know, they have questions, they have concerns, they don't totally trust the government, they don't trust pharmaceutical companies. So that was, that was always there, and, and you know, we see relatively low levels of flu vaccine take up every year, et cetera. So, so you know, there, there's that, that, that sort of thing. But in this case, I think the president really grasped onto the idea of a vaccine as the silver bullet and has been pressing for it. And, and I will say like the, the speed with which vaccine development has progressed on this has been unbelievable. It's, it's unlike anything we've ever seen which I think also is raising some concerns and red flags for people. There are reasons why it's why it's been faster um, that I can't really explain because I'm not a scientist, but it has to do with RNA versus DNA and, and different kinds of things. You know, we were about to make this leap anyway, but I think the speed is both exciting, but I think it sort of scares people. How is this happening so fast? Normally it takes years, what's going on? And then the president kind of beating the drumbeat of we're gonna get these vaccines out before the election, you know, clearly sort of a, a political element to that. That's made people kind of kind of question. I think you know, as inappropriate as that has been, it's also been unhelpful the way that others who oppose the president have sort of said, "Well, I wouldn't trust any vaccine, you know, approved by him." Da da da. da. You know, so that just sort of feeds this idea that if a vaccine comes out, it'll be political. It'll be about it'll be about you know the election or whatever. I, I am hopeful that to some degree that will dissipate after the election. We're not going to have a vaccine before the election. That was probably never going to happen. You know, some people start to see, oh, well, no one's getting any political benefit from getting this now. Um, so th that might help a little bit. If you really dive into the numbers, you have a lot of resistance among minority communities. Part of that, and particularly African-American community, because you know what? The US government has treated the African-American community horribly when it comes to medical uh, experimentation over the years. So there's like a, a great deal of distrust there that, that's understandable. We need a lot of outreach. You know, the FDA has tried to implement some stricter than normal rules around rolling out a vaccine just to kind of give people confidence, uh, because it's not going to do us a lot of good if we get a vaccine and 50% and of Americans are like, eh, I'm not going to take it. So, so on, the, on the, that side, you know, that's, that's kind of what's going on. And I think people are questioning the independence of the agency. Hopefully, you know, again, we can get past the election and that will resolve somewhat. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned silver bullet and a lot of people have picked up on this. The vaccine is the silver bullet. But you've noted that that may not be the silver bullet to end the pandemic right away. Can you walk us through some of the reasons why there? Yeah. So vaccines are not 100 percent, first of all. They're just they're just not. And, you know, you see it with the flu vaccine every year, other vaccines, even even vaccines like measles, et cetera. Some people just are resistant. They, they just don't work, um, which is why you need enough people to get the vaccine. We hear a lot about herd immunity, but herd immunity is achieved through vaccination, not not through infection. That, like that's never happened. So, so so that's why you need enough people to take a vaccine to get to a herd immunity point. So the people who don't take it or can't take it or it doesn't work for are protected as well. But, you know, I think it was Dr. Fauci who said, look, if, if we get a vaccine that's 67% effective, we'll be, we'll be thrilled. Like, hopefully it's 80% or, you know, but like we're talking about, you know, between 50 and 80% effective. It's, it's not going to be a fail safe. It will take a while to get production up. Um, you know, if you think early on, we're going to be vaccinating probably nursing home residents, 
first responders, medical professionals, the military, like it's going to be a while before the vaccine is widely available. And there will be multiple vaccines as well, right? And so, but it'll take a while to get all of that up and running and it, and it just won't in and of itself end things, right? And, and you know, coronavirus, COVID is going to be around forever, right? So that, you know, that's kind of, it is what it is. So I think, you know, we're going to need testing. We're, we're going to need a really detailed testing framework. We're, we're getting very rapid, affordable tests now where you can pay $5 and, and get your test results in 15 minutes. You know, I, I imagine a scenario next year where, you know, you've got an app that records your, te- you can go to the, the CVS, get your test on Monday, get, you know, get sort of that little app confirmation that, hey, yeah, negative test, go around for a week, you're good to go, get tested again, you know, um, those kinds of things, I think, will be key to um, to sort of getting back to normal, even more so than a vaccine. And, and then, you know, additionally, treatments. We're getting better at treating COVID. Like, we're, we're learning kind of what works and what doesn't. And we'll be learning about this for years, right? I think it's easy to forget that this virus didn't exist, you know, a year and a half ago, as far as we knew, or even like six months ago, maybe that's... So, like, you know, you're constantly learning new things about how it affects different kinds of people, um, different sorts of symptoms. So we're going to discover more about long-term effects um, as, as time goes on. We'll get better at treating it. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like every couple of you know, every couple of weeks, there's a new article out there that is about you know something new we've learned about COVID. So, like you said, there's it's a lot all contradictory, right? But it's all yeah, probably yeah. somewhat true. <laughs> it's like we just don't have the whole picture yet. So right, right, right. You're still we're still studying it. We're still learning, and that's part of the process. Um, one final note before I let you go. Um, as you may have heard, there's a big election coming up. But let's focus on the next couple of months. Uh, what, if anything, healthcare-related uh, might we see in a lame duck session this year? Yeah, so so there's really sort of two things, I guess, to watch for, maybe three. There's, there's the health extenders, which are just a, a bunch of different sort of tax policies and health programs, et cetera, that kind of, you know, come up periodically, have to be renewed, those will have to be done. That'll just happen as part of a spending package, most likely. So I don't think that'll be particularly controversial, but they're out there. There's the issue of surprise medical bills. Congress has been has been circling a deal on surprise medical bills for a long time. There will be a push in the lame duck for that. In uh, Energy and Commerce Ranking Member Walden and uh, Health Education and Labor Chairman Alexander are retiring. Um, they have been huge advocates for this. So, so they'll, we'll see what happens. That's going to be an effort. And then there's obviously, you know, the chance of another round of COVID relief. Those, those bills have not had a ton of health policy in them. It's mostly been funding for federal health programs, things like that. So I don't know exactly what would end up in there, but you could see maybe something like surprise medical billing kind of go, go with that maybe or with, or with an end of year spending package. But that, that's probably it for the end of the year kind of regardless of the outcome of the election. Uh, I don't think we'll see any serious health policy making until next year either way. Gotcha. Chris, thanks for taking the time today. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.